Hello and welcome. This is Puneet Surana and you are listening to the Galata podcast. Galata is a word from the Indian language Kannada that means the noise caused by a ruckus. This podcast is about starting up while we are still in college, testing ideas, creating a team, building something worthwhile and adding value to other people's lives. Join us as we discuss the thrill of earning your first buck tackling uncertainties overcoming obstacles and delighting others most of all the galata podcast is about seeing understanding and implementing so you can deliver on your audacious promise our guest is a user researcher who works on technology projects in emerging markets he cares deeply about understanding india and its future through the youth he has written for the washington post new statesman mint times of india and many more publications i agree with dr sashi tharoor whose endorsement for his book reads a timely and urgent work of scholarship eminently readable and utterly fascinating so boys and girls please join me in welcoming the author of what millennials want decoding the world's largest generation vivan marwaha thank you puneet for having me uh, it's wonderful to be here the book what millennials want has been really eye opening for me because when we met at geist tap room i was surprised by the audience having their stereotypes broken while you went through the facets and facts and journey through the book so i'm really excited to break down and talk about the book's journey and your journey thanks puneet yeah it was wonderful meeting you last month in bangalore just to give the audience some context puneet and i met at one of the events that i was speaking at um at a brewery in Orion Mall in Bangalore called uh, the Geist Brewing Tap Room and we had a really great conversation over there and um the audience which was predominantly or very stereotypically Bangalore which was mostly entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and people connected with the IT uh industry did indeed have a lot of their assumptions about Indian youth and Indian millennials broken and what i'm talking about right now and this is not necessarily limited to the audience in bangalore but in big mm-hmm. indian cities by and large is that when we talk about indian millennials we often think about this sort of western centric uh, young indian who watches netflix and who's addicted to instagram and who can't get enough of avocado toast <laughs> and who can't hold a job and Correct. when you look at the country and lazy <laughs> exactly <laughs> and woke but when you look at the country and indian youth the reality couldn't be further from some of these stereotypes Correct. that people have and what i mean by that is that india has a median age of 28 a majority of young indians continue to live in small towns and cities So this is not Delhi this is not Mumbai this is not Bangalore this is not Kolkata these are towns like Bhopal and Indore and Mysore and Calicut and Jabalpur all of which are towns and cities where i've spent a considerable amount of time to interview young indians to interview indian millennials and ask them questions about their economic aspirations their social views and their political attitudes mm-hmm. which i of course talk about in my book but what i'm really saying right now is that in our media and if you watch a bollywood film and i know south indian cinema does a bit better when it comes to representation but when you read newspaper articles mm-hmm. that come out of delhi or if you read uh, analyses that are written up they often ignore the fact that in many ways young indians are still not being given the attention they deserve Correct. in an economy that's simply not creating jobs enough jobs and in a global social economic and political order that's undergoing tremendous upheaval hmm 
Now, that's a lot of jargon out there, but audience, you got to stay with us because what he's talking about, once you visualize, it's going to make you go, wow, we're really fucked up and we got to change fast. <sighs> but before we go to the meat of the stereotypes, the kind of assumptions that were broken for you and for those who are going to read the book and for all the listeners, you started the journey of the book from the Infosys campus in Mysore. Yes, I did. Um, and when you read the book, Beneath, which you've done, uh, it's divided into four main themes. And those themes are the education sector in India, followed by the economic aspirations of Indian millennials, followed by the social views of Indian millennials, and then finally their political attitudes. The reason why I was at Mysore is I spent a couple of days as an outsider at mm -hmm. the Infosys campus in Mysore, which to give folks context is the world's largest corporate training facility. And when you enter that Infosys campus, it's amazing. It's absolutely incredible what they've created. It's a beautiful campus that feels often like you're in Singapore with multiplexes and a cricket pitch and a golf course and lakes and multiple food courts that serve amazing food at very low prices and hostels and hotels and state-of-the-art uh, facilities and classrooms and, you know, the works. Wow. Doesn't and feel like Mysore. It doesn't. It <laughs> often doesn't even feel like you're in, um, you know, a small town India. But what I write in my book, Puneet, is that mm -hmm. what Infosys is doing in Mysore is not a symbol of India's success, but a symbol Correct. of India's failure. And what I mean by that is that Infosys essentially is educating or is training 10,000 new hires who have just finished their college education in engineering or in computer science for six entire months at its facility in Mysore at considerable cost to itself in subjects and topics that they should have learned in their three or four year degrees as undergraduates. But because mm. the Indian education system is not teaching these engineers and is not teaching these computer science students things that they really need to be successful in today's jobs, a company like Infosys has to teach them those skills. So it's really replacing the college. Exactly. The private sector and this private company has replaced the college. And we can, you know, say that Infosys has the resources to do so. And it does. But yeah. what this... For the but, audience, it takes, what, 5 lakh rupees per individual as an expense to Infosys. I think, uh, I think it might be 10 lakhs, but... Um, or, or it's 5 lakhs, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. Um, now, Infosys has the resources to do so. But tomorrow, if I wanted to start my own venture, I would probably not find an engineering graduate hmm. at an entry level for an entry level position under, you know, 12 or 15 lakhs per annum to hit the ground running and build my product the way it needs to be built. And so while Infosys can afford to do this for its new hires, this actually has very serious effects on the Correct. wider entrepreneur community uh, that has to pay much more to get basic talent that engineering graduates should anyway have. But also yeah. what this means is that because colleges are not really doing their job in educating the students they, the way they should, it's actually created an environment where um, where almost 95% of engineering graduates in India are not mm -hmm. skilled for any job in the knowledge economy. And this isn't my opinion. This is fact. An employment assessment firm called Aspiring Minds, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, did a survey and found that 95% of engineering graduates are not employable for any job in the knowledge economy today. So what this means is that you have millions of kids and you know young indians who are graduating from engineering institutions every year but they're mm -hmm. not actually able to do any jobs that really require them to use their knowledge and so that has serious effects on the return on the investment of the education but also on the types of jobs that are available to them and Correct. Yeah. Um, when they enter the economy or they try to get a job on their financial stability 
what blew me was for a long time i thought it was just limited to engineers but then i bumped in on page 21 of your book that less than 50% of b pharma students are employable and less than 40% of mba and mca program students are employable and the number is even more lesser for ba graduates and bcom graduates somewhere in the ball figure of 35% the education system has really failed us as millennials Yes Puneet this is not just an engineering problem but like you mentioned yeah. it's an education problem and to go a little bit deeper and to be more specific what i write in the book drawing on the work of other scholars particularly in the education sector is that india does not have an education system as much as it has a filtering system And what I mean by that which a professor at the University of California named Karthik Muralidharan along with a team of other researchers has written more deeply about is that in India we are essentially just taking students and filtering them towards a small number of seats at a small number of good IITs IIMs medical colleges and then finally government jobs which is filtering kids towards these small opportunities as opposed to educating them to undertake any opportunity that could present itself at any point in time and so instead of telling kids that hey why don't you really learn the fundamentals of science and engineering or why don't you really learn the fundamentals of business and management we're saying no 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 why don't you just try and crack this examination okay. so that you can yeah. get into iit or so that you can get into iim or so that you can get into medical school and that's a real yeah. problem yeah i think the fundamental question that students should have would be how can i apply this as change to will this help me crack an x test and that's really shallow for our education system yep i'm really curious cuz you you literally interviewed people in tea stalls and job fairs and parking lots hmm what drove you to do that i really appreciate your persistence and determination to get to the truth of things but what what drove you to do that the reason why i wrote my book and i undertook this research project for the book was to really highlight and hear from people we don't traditionally hear from and mm-hmm. what i mean by that are people who are usually ignored by journalists in delhi or mumbai and by policy makers in delhi but these are the same people who are the ones who make or break elections and who are the next group of consumers of goods and services in india and and the type of people who are setting the cultural agenda of the country these are the people who really form the numbers of of indian millennials today but we never hear their voices in our media and mm. so as you said i went out i was camped out in small town india i was attending political rallies and job fairs and talking to people outside of coaching centers and food stalls and snack stalls and really you know the whole gamut because i wanted to meet people who i would never otherwise hear from if i was a consumer of traditional media and even new media how did you break ice with them how did you introduce yourself what was it like it wasn't easy at all and the first couple of trips i really had a lot of um uh stumbling that took place because i had never done field research before and so at first i would just go up to people on the street mm-hmm. and i would ask them you know hi i'm a, i'm this writer from delhi and i was wondering if i could ask you a few questions for 5 or 10 minutes and mm-hmm. then initially after breaking ice with some people and you know it's very situational you have to really be good at judging your environment and being a, a good judge of human behavior some people really opened up to me so there were 5 minute conversations that became 15 mm-hmm. and then half an hour long conversations and then ended up with me you know going to the person's house and seeing how they lived while there were other mm-hmm. conversations that were just 2 or 3 minutes because no one was interested in talking to me 
And so it really depended on all of these other factors like whether people were willing to talk to me at that point in time, whether I was at the right place, whether I presented myself in a friendly, disarming manner. There's no one way for for these interviews to go because when you're mm-hmm. trying to interview a diverse set of people, you're going to meet them in a diverse set of circumstances and situations. And those are all going to present unique challenges and opportunities. And it really depends on the a specific set of circumstances for you to take advantage of those uh, opportunities. Wow, that's a lot of rejections and flaking down that you had to go through. Must be. Yeah, I'm sure people would be really closed. Yeah. You've not only reached out to the bottom of the pyramid, which are pretty much the entire youth across 14 states, how did you manage to reach out to individuals like Sashi Tharoor, Aditya Thakre, Lisa Ray, Sanjeev Bikchandani to get your book reviewed? What was your approach like with individuals like these? One of the main reasons why I wrote this book was to make policymakers and business leaders and those who are in positions of cultural, social and economic power in India aware of the country that uh, and a part of the country that we don't always hear from. And so when the book came out and when it was getting ready for release, I really made a big effort to present the book to many of these individuals who are in these positions of power. Because for us to create positive change in India, those who are driving this change must know what's happening in young India and the challenges that young Indians and Indian millennials face. And so I presented copies of my book to lawmakers from all sides of the political spectrum, from the left to the center left to the right to the center right. And these are lawmakers from the Shiv Sena, the Congress, the Trinamool Congress, the BJD, and a whole you know range of political parties and uh, entrepreneurs and businessmen from traditional business uh, leaders to those in the internet economy. And then finally, to cultural figures, like you mentioned, Lisa Ray, who has endorsed the book. And I really wanted these people to know some of the insights that I had gathered as they make some of their decisions, because it's really important for young India to have a voice and a seat at the table. And I believe that my book is one of the ways that young Indians' voices are being heard. The question is still unanswered, Vivan. I know that's the that's the answer that that is uh, that I I am comfortable giving. <laughs> I mean, you know, Puneet, like you can't. I mean, it, it's hard to ask someone, you know, um, to sort of talk about you know personal things on a public. Um, Agreed. That's yeah. exactly why I'm asking you this because yeah. individuals who are listening to this podcast are clueless of how if they want to reach out for their startup funding or for uh, an idea validation or even just for getting a testimonial or a blurb like you did. And that's the kind of individual I'm asking this question for. So I, I understand know, you have like, an established you know, network. Um, Is there anybody else who you reached out to out of your network or through your network and what approach worked or what strategy or hack or tactic worked? Okay, yeah, I can share the Tharoor anecdote, yeah. Yeah, I think that, yeah. And then just to go a little bit um, uh, further and to answer your question, Puneet, um, Shashi Tharoor is someone who I've had a relationship with for about three, three and a half years now because when I worked at the think tank that I was working at right before I started my book project, I spent about 10, 11 days with uh, Dr. Tharoor. I was organizing a conference that he was uh, chairing And back then, his book called Why I Am a Hindu had just come out. And him and I took a photo and it's, you know, it's up on Twitter and Instagram and all of that. And that's when I began to conceptualize my own book. And I knew back then that in a few years, I'm going to be giving him a copy of Mm -hmm. my book. And through the years, I sort of kept my professional connection with him going. And then he he read my book, the uh, the draft of my book before we had published and was 
kind and gracious enough to offer an endorsement. Um, so I took him up on that offer and, um, mm-hmm. and he liked the book a lot. And then I also with, um, felt very honored to give him a copy when I had returned to Delhi a few months ago. Hmm. If I may, how did you maintain an ongoing relationship with somebody like him? Sharing my insights and the, the fieldwork that I was doing because a lot of it has been in Kerala. And um, you've read mm-hmm. the book, so you know I've spent time and I talk a lot about Calicut particularly in the conclusion, but I've also spoken to people in mm-hmm. Cochin, Arnakulam, uh, Koteam. And as I was gathering some of these insights, I attended some events um, through the years where Dr. Tharoor was also present. I, w- I had never planned to meet him, but I would see mm-hmm. him and I would just share, oh, I was just in Kerala recently and I you know, I was talking to some young people and they were telling me about this event or that issue. And then he would sort of, you know, tell me his thoughts. And so mm-hmm. we just sort of had a, an exchange of ideas and uh, anecdotes that we kept alive. Look, that's beautiful. I'm happy we're opening up. <laughs> Indeed. Jumping off to a completely different tangent, though in your book is one that really stuck a chord with me was that the young Indians can't afford the cost of love. This was an assumption or a stereotype that was broken for me. But can you tell us more, why can't the young millennials in India not afford the cost of love? In my book, I actually write that many millennials simply cannot afford to fall in love. The risk of being cut off from their families or being evicted from their homes is too great. Given the low incomes and high cost of home ownership, many find it difficult to get by without familial support. I just read out a quote. Uh, or a few sentences where I talk about how love marriages are indeed and the costs that come with them are often too high for Indian millennials to afford. And what I mean by that is if you're living at home with your parents and you're dependent on them for a certain level of financial support and they find a boy or a girl for you to marry, it'll be very difficult for you to say no. And Mm -hmm. the price of you saying no, at the very least, could be a bad relationship with them. But going further could potentially mean that you lose your home and where you're staying. To go a little bit Mm -hmm. further could mean threats to your physical safety. And to go the furthest means threats to your life. And we've seen numerous instances of these stories every few weeks where a young couple or a young man or a young woman who has eloped has been chased and hunted Mm -hmm. down by their family and either brought back home or assaulted or even killed for disobeying their family's wishes and eloping with someone against their family's choice. And really, you know, love marriages and love relationships in India are in many ways, a privilege for those who can afford Mm. to live on their own or for those who have families who might be accepting towards such relationships. But for a vast majority of young Indians who live with their parents in small-town India, that is still not a possibility. And they still have to sort of abide by the relationships that their families have made for them. What really shocked me was that 84% of millennials prefer arranged marriages and 76% of them think live-in relationship is wrong. So we are having a, in in a way it's, it looks and seems like we have become liberal as millennials, but it looks like it's just a facade and at a deeper level, we are just replicas of our elders or you've barely become selectively liberal. Do you feel the same? In India, um, it's hard to call people liberal or conservative because these labels vary so widely within individuals Hmm. and definitely within larger groups. But what I've found is at the end of the day that a lot of this is very 
economic and financial and not because people have um, certain social attitudes out of choice. And like you mm-hmm. said in the book, I cite a figure where, um, which the Center for the Study of Developing Societies, CSGS, which is sort of a preeminent think tank that collects this sort of data. They found that 84% of married millennials have had arranged marriages. And when I spoke to these people, I really found that in a lot of those, or in a big majority of those cases, they had very traditional arranged marriages because they were in these uh, situations where they really couldn't afford to say no. And if they said no, they might have sort of lost familial support and they might have lost the homes that they live in. And I would not call it a facade of liberalism, but I would say that we sort of uh, the media and Bollywood in particular mm-hmm. sort of focuses on the 16% that is having love marriages and chooses <laughs> to talk about them because those people tend to be economically more affluent and better represented yeah. in power Those structures. are the ones celebrated. Exactly. But also for the other 84%, that's sort of a little bit of an escapist fantasy Right, that when you mm-hmm. watch a movie like Bachna e Hasino, you know, Ranbir Kapoor, Deepika Padukone, they fall in love on this friends trip. Now, not a lot of people can actually relate to that story, but that movie yeah. did so well, and all of these other movies do so well because they provide their viewers reason, yeah. with an escapist fantasy. Correct. I'm wondering, how did you get individuals, couples, to open up about things like religion? history of how they got married, their political views. How were you able to get them to open up at a level where they were this candid with you? Uh, Not every interviewee of mine opened up to the level at which I could really ask them about their marriages or their relationships or even their political views. That was smaller number of people who I had able to develop a level of trust, Hmm? friendship with. And some of these individuals I met not once or twice, but multiple times and over multiple trips because I basically became their friend. And in many of these cases, a lot of these individuals had views very different from my own. But my job was Mm -hmm. not to share my views or to bring people over to how I think, but to understand how they think and more importantly, why they think the way they think and why they behave the way they Mm -hmm. behave. And so I really basically in many ways had just become a yes man uh, when I was uh, asking questions and I would agree with everything that my interviewee said because that's the only way that they're going to open up with me. The the way I would ask these questions, um, I would say if we go by more successful interviews, is that after Mm -hmm. breaking the ice, I would sort of phrase it with, if I may ask you about your relationship, or if you feel comfortable, can I ask you a question about, you know, the current political climate, for example. Mm -hmm. And because I'd already Mm -hmm. spent, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes already talking to these people, a lot of my respondents ended up opening up to me and sharing their views. And we took it from there. And it was a, these weren't short conversations. These were longer dialogues that we had. And that was the best part of my research was sitting down with some of these individuals and really understanding where they're coming from. Were you recording these conversations? Were you taking notes while you're talking to them? Or were you just listening to them and then taking notes? What is your format like? How did you document this entire, I think, 900 plus interviews? So all of my uh, interviews or almost all of them were recorded um, on my phone with the consent of my interviewees, which I would ask Mm -hmm. them uh, after the first or second question, just to make sure that they were okay with it. And then I would go back and pass my um, uh, audio transcripts and uh, really see which were the notable answers and type them up. And sometimes Mm -hmm. if the, uh, uh, when I would get quantitative i also have an excel document where i would collect a lot of the quantitative data 
for comparison, of course. Um, so it was a variety of research methods. And many times I would actually just sit with a notebook and a pen and write down what people were telling me. There was no one way I did it, but the greatest sort mm-hmm. of data was in the audio recordings that I had made. And you're traveling alone all throughout the 14 states and all the tier two, tier three cities? Or did you have a team? What was it like? I was largely traveling on my own, but I had, in many of the places I went to, I either had uh, professional contacts or I had uh, friends or I had someone who had connected me with someone. So I was uh, never alone alone, but I was doing my work independently. I want to jump off to a chapter, Economic Aspirations, and... Can you explain to the audience what jobless growth is? Most of them would have felt it, but I don't think they would have realized it. So can you draw a picture of the decade we had of jobless growth in India? In India, the 1991 economic liberalization is often hailed as being one of those events of transformative change in the country. And for a large part of the measure, it was. It created or it led to the boom of the IT industry, and it really helped the services industry more broadly take off. And you saw the creation or the boom of places like Gurgaon and High Tech City and uh, BKC in Mumbai, you know, really take off and boom. But for a vast part of the country outside of these big cities, liberalization did not really change life in the way that we thought it did. And it did not create transformative job growth in large parts of India. And so in the decades after liberalization, but particularly in the period after 2000 and Mm -hmm. 2015, India was growing very rapidly and GDP growth was for many years around 10%. But job growth was not commensurate with GDP growth. And what I mean by that is because India sort of prioritized the services sector in its 1991 reforms, which naturally Mm -hmm. does not employ as many people as, say, manufacturing would, the services sector grew. And because it's a high value sector, the GDP grew even faster. But employment did not grow at a pace that the country needed it to grow at. And it definitely did not grow in conjunction with population growth in India. And so India had consecutive periods of jobless growth where the economy was growing, but jobs were not growing. And this phenomenon only accelerated after the 2000s, where first there was an oil shock, then there was inflation, and then there were sort of self-inflicted policy problems like demonetization that really created a lot of economic hardship in the country and periods where essentially culminated in 2019 with uh, data that had come out that India was experiencing 45-year high youth unemployment. 45-year mm-hmm. high despite, you know, liberalization and all of these reforms that had taken place after 1991. What do you think would be a better way to lead millennials versus the other generations that these startup entrepreneurs have? Is there a different or a better way to lead them? We are talking about entrepreneurs across the country who are opening up their business or their shop in tier two, tier three cities who are finding really hard to find employees and keep young employees. That's a really important question. And I was just on a panel at the Tata Lit Live uh, book festival recently with an entrepreneur who was who was really empathizing with a lot of the work that I've done and the people I've spoken to. And she was sharing her own perspective as an employer. And she was telling me how she has a really hard problem in hiring talent and in finding talent because she has a lot of vacancies, but she is not able to find the right people to fill those vacancies. And this is really the unfortunate conundrum or paradox that India is in right now, where Companies do want to hire people, but they're not actually able to find skilled people to fill those positions. 
And you have a lot of companies that have just hundreds of vacancies because they're not able to find people with the right skills to actually do those jobs. And then you have even more people who are technically qualified to do those jobs on paper, but are not practically able to do them because they do not actually have the skills to do them. So how do entrepreneurs solve this? We can't really spend 5 to 10 lakh rupees per employee like Infosys does. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Until we can't. Maybe we get listed, but how do we, how do we solve it and still grow as a startup? We can't. And the way entrepreneurs sort of have to solve this problem is to either figure out hybrid or low-cost models to upskill uh, new hires themselves or is to essentially work with the government and work with the skill development local and national ministries on really telling them, hey guys, these are the type of skills and uh, these are the types of capacities that we need. And why don't you work on your side of the curriculum development and the practical training on providing those skills? And there needs to be a public-private partnership and far more conversations between those in private in the private sector and those who are in the public sector responsible for skilling. Because there is a lot of high-level macro focus or understanding that something needs to be done at a policy level on skilling. But there's not enough actual implementation and on the ground connect with the skilling programs Correct. requirements. So there needs to be more dialogue between the public and the private sector. Vivan, I get that, but that's a really long-term game that you're talking about. But startups have really short-term, three to five years if they're lucky. Have you been able to, in your travels, notice or observe startups being able to solve it and still capitalize on the millennials that they have access to how did they do it i have not and um i oh, I'm, I'm on the lookout for companies that are doing this so if if any of your listeners have any information please do reach out to me on my social media and let me know because yeah. i would love to know more his handles will be in the show description along with everything that we have spoken about linked your book says that 65% of young Indians prefer government job, which is shocking. But I'm more interested in the 19% who want to start up their business. In your conversation, what were the common points that they brought up? I was as shocked as you were when I first saw that figure that 65% of young Indians list a government job as their top priority, followed by 19% who want to start their own business. And just to really emphasize that even within that 19%, when they say that they want their own startup, that does not necessarily mean a tech startup in Bangalore or a new brand in Delhi or Mumbai. That can often even mean a Kirana shop in a small town. And actually, that does mean a Kirana shop in a small town or yeah. uh, something more basic like that. Because... Let's look at the reality. If you're from a small town in India, a private sector formal job has never been a part of your life. It's never been a construct okay. because your previous generations worked on the farm. And so for them to have a private job was never something that anyone in their lives had. And the only jobs that those people did know were, the, were government jobs. They would see the district collector who had an incredible amount of power and status as a young person in their towns and villages. Or then they would see their own family members who were connected to the farm. So the only impression that they had of government job, of a private job, was of some far off relative or someone's friend who's a friend of someone else who had a private sector job that usually tended to be tended mm -hmm. to be quite exploitative, which is why only 7% of young Indians list a private sector job as their top priority. Now, since you had asked me about the 19%, a vast majority of that 19% is looking at a startup job or their own venture, but a more primitive and not a tech forward venture the way we would think. Mm -hmm. And these people, they either want to... And I met many of these individuals. They either, the, the business ideas that I often heard were also connected to government jobs, like setting up a shop to help people get Aadhaar cards 
or setting up hmm. a shop to help people get their ration cards or setting up a shop to sell prepaid SIM cards and top up your mobile phone plans. These were not tech-forward solutions the way some of your listeners Correct. in Bangalore yeah. might think sure. of. Talk to me about the possible solutions that you're that you're thinking about. Because I know government is going to take a really long time to solve the jobless growth scenario. But there are entrepreneurs who are listening right now. How can they chime in and how can they support millennials? So how can the entrepreneurs who are listening fill into the job crisis that's happening? And how can they lead millennials better? Because they also have the same perceptions that most of others have. That millennials are lazy, they're addicted to Instagram, they are not reliable, Mm -hmm. um, they're not loyal. So how do you think we could do it different this time? Before I answer it, I just want to emphasize that there's not just a moral imperative for entrepreneurs to solve some of these problems, but there's also an economic one. So what I mean to say is it's not just morally the right thing to do for entrepreneurs to start thinking about solutions to solve India's jobs crisis, but in many ways it could also, if done right and not in a very exploitative manner, it could also be financially lucrative for them to do so. And what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about right now, a variety of programs where entrepreneurs can sort of fill in the gaps. When I was in Bangalore uh, last month, I met with folks from a startup called Maasai School. And what Maasai School does is they're an online upskilling academy. Initially, it was, you know, people from any background, housewives and dropouts and people just, you know, trying to change professions can basically join this academy and they pay no money up front and get... Mm certified or, you know, get skilled in uh, computer programming and app development and, you know, coding and things like that. And Masai School, I don't want to talk about their particular business model too much, but they would also guarantee jobs at one point in time with, you know, certain companies and they'd work with employers to make sure that their needs were being fulfilled. So Masai School is just one example, but there's a whole variety of other examples and other models that entrepreneurs can pursue in, you know, solving the jobs problem in India. There's another startup in Bangalore right now. It's called Apna. And it's basically Mm -hmm. a blue-collar hiring platform, uh, a blue-collar LinkedIn, you may call it, which is essentially connecting a lot of, you know, blue-collar workers or those looking for those those kinds of jobs with employers who need to employ a certain number of workers in their warehouses or to, you know, manage facilities and things like that. So there are a whole variety of ways, but I would encourage entrepreneurs to look at the skilling and the education segments uh, the most right now. So how does Maasai school make money if they don't take an upfront fee from people? Just a quick interlude. Do they charge once they get a job? Is that their model? Yeah, it's an income sharing agreement. So once you get a job, you basically pay a certain amount out of your salary or something like that, uh, that goes to Masai school. And that's like a one-time thing or is it like a continued? Because that I would mean, be exploitative for a certain, it's, it's a continued. Yeah. I don't believe it's exploitative at all because it's for, I mean, otherwise, what what's the current education system in India right now? People pay money up mm-hmm. front and then they don't get jobs afterwards. So Maasai school is basically only if you do get a job and a job that pays over a certain amount for an agreed upon period, you pay a certain amount of your salary to them. So, I mean, at least they're they're saying that we'd only do this if you do get a job. It's not everyone else who they'll give you this expensive degree and you won't even get employed afterwards. Do you know the practice in Bangalore that I've heard of? Um, What is that? Some of the top colleges charge students once they get the jobs, once they are placed with usually the first month salary or a percentage of their package. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is so basically that. This is exactly what that is. Yeah, this is exactly that. Yeah. Without yeah. the upfront fee or the education or the mm-hmm. degree. Yes. Talk to me about the time pass generation that you discovered or uncovered in your journey. And... What consequences do you foresee if this continues? Time pass is something we all have discussed. Um, You know, what are you doing right now? I'm just doing time pass. I'm just chilling. But 
In in my book, and I draw on the work of a scholar named Craig Jeffrey, who wrote a book called Time Path, I talk about, you know, the economic and socio-political ramifications of an entire generation, basically just completely engrossed in time paths all of the time. And what I found, you know, when I went to small town India, predominantly my fieldwork was done, was that I met countless young men and women who didn't have any jobs. And they were just sort of doing really nothing. They were hanging around these public squares, driving around town on their motorcycles. And, you know, the phenomenon is so widespread that it has an academic term of its own, which is time pass. And the consequences of this are huge because, you know, like we discussed earlier, India's youth are India's future. And Mm -hmm. what that means is that our youth are was supposed to be a demographic dividend and that when our youth are employed in good paying stable jobs and they consume goods and services they essentially contribute back to the economy and pay out like a dividend would but if they're not doing that and if they're engaged in time pass then that's a real problem where now you're seeing state governments offer schemes to the youth and offer welfare programs to the youth when in any every other country, those are offered to old people. Um, so, you know, it's really we're working in an upside down sort of paradigm in India right now, which, which is what my book talks about and which, what ne- which is what needs to be rectified. So youth are no more the future. I think youth are right now the present. And at the moment, you're saying our youth is not a demographic dividend by dividend being paid out to the government is what I understand. No, it's but paid out a to demographic. The you mean the government in terms of taxes, in terms of... But not just the government, because when your youth is employed and is making money, then they're also consuming, they're going to restaurants and they're shopping mm-hmm. and they're taking vacations and that's how they put money back into the economy. So it's not just purely from a taxation point of view, but it's from a consumption point of view. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So at the moment is the millennials, the 400 million plus millennials in India, are they a demographic dividend or are they a demographic disaster? According to you. So I wouldn't go as far as calling them a demographic disaster, which is, you know, by the way, what a lot of scholars have already been doing. Because in my view and in the research that I've done is that young Indians are still quite optimistic about the future. And in this country, given the fact that there is no robust social security program, it's not that these people can just fall back and rely on the state because they still at the end of the day need to pay the bills and they still need to find ways to get by. So not a demographic Mm -hmm. disaster, but definitely not a demographic Mm -hmm. dividend either. And, you know, there was this big hope in 2007, 2008, when all of this foreign money was flowing into India and, you know, these big deals are being made. And that Mm -hmm. was also the time of the Beijing Olympics. And there was a big hope that, you know, India was just a few years away from China in terms of economic development and prosperity. But, you know, it's been 13, 14 years since then. And it still seems like we're a generation away. So what happened? And so people have already moved on and they're talking about Gen Z, but I'm still trying to get focus the conversation on millennials and how we can unlock the potential of Indian millennials. Gotcha. I want to jump to politics because that is, I think, the crux or the main core of your book, having about 30% of your book is focused on politics uh, directly. So how do you think millennials are viewing politics differently from every other generation? Because personally, I feel I'm fully disengaged. And what were your findings? One of the reasons why my book focuses on politics so much is because in India, politics has so much influence on daily life and much more than any other country. And what I found with Indian millennials, and these are not just my observations, but there's a lot of data to back this up, which is, of course, in the book, that millennials, by and large, are more pro-BJP and more pro-Modi than other generations. And the reason why that is, is in 2014, when a lot of millennials were either voting for their first or their second time, 
he was the new kid on the block, right? You had 10 years of the UPA government and the last three, four years of that government were marred by lots of controversies and crises and inflation. It was led by a prime minister who was not a very good orator and he did not have a lot of mass connect. And then Modi comes onto the scene and he's promising people bullet trains and tens of millions of new jobs and, you know, all of these things. And what I write in the book is who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want any of those things? And so millennials, you know, they really signed up for that vision and they offered, many of them actually even broke their traditional caste allegiances Mm -hmm. to vote for the BJP. So, for example, the BSP, which is, you know, the traditional home of the Dalits in the country, did not win a single seat in the 2014 election. Not even one. It was completely routed across its strongholds because a lot of Dalit voters had moved moved to the BJP. There's also a little bit of evidence that even Muslims had voted for the BJP. And of course, there's a lot of evidence that millennials had voted for the BJP. And what I found since then is that they are still very largely behind the prime minister. And when I say largely behind, I don't mean a majority. So I don't mean 51%. But I mean a plurality that the BJP does get the plurality of millennial votes, while it does, even though it does not get a majority of those votes. What and do you so mean? we're talking about between 35 to 40% of Indian millennials, which means that Amongst the political parties, they get the most votes from millennials, but they don't get a majority of the votes because there's still about 60-65% of millennials do not vote for the BJP. And these are largely in non-Hindi speaking states across the country. And the reason why you have so much support for Modi in Hindi speaking states is very much related to identity, aspiration and language. Modi speaks the language of the people, right? Both in terms of the actual language being Hindi, but also in terms of the language of desire and the language of aspiration. And his own life story of that being of, you know, the son of a tea seller who made it to the office of prime minister, a lot of millennials look at him and they say that if he could do it, then so can we. And, you know, if he could do it without being a part of the elite, this English-speaking elite that's, you know, disconnected from the country, then so can we. And so there's a lot of power in that story and in that personality that's very difficult for anyone to recreate. And I'm not here to, you know, doubt the prime minister or, you know, share my views on him, but share the views of the people I met and the people I was speaking to. And then in the non-Hindi speaking states... You see very similar leaders to Prime Minister Modi who have incredible popularity. So I'm talking about a Mamta Banerjee, who, you know, also rose up from the streets mm-hmm. to become the leader of her state. I'm talking about an Arvind Kejriwal, who is also predominantly, you know, Hindi speaking, clean governance type of individual who is a very pro-poor leader and is, you know, very beloved in Delhi, particularly among, among the poor community. And you also mm-hmm. have this in Andhra Pradesh with Jagan Reddy, who, despite yeah. being the son of a chief minister, has rebranded himself as also being a man of the people. And so this is incredibly powerful in Indian politics right now, the language of identity and aspiration. Hmm. Who do you think is becoming the millennial voice when it comes to the leaders. I see Tejasvi Surya becoming a millennial voice in a lot of ways. So I write about Tejasvi Surya in my book um, as being a millennial voice. But I also say that there is no one millennial voice in a country like India where there's so many different languages and communities that live together. And so Tejasvi Surya is a millennial voice for a certain middle or upper middle class, upper caste millennial in big cities. But that's it. He doesn't have much appeal beyond that Mm -hmm. demographic. And that demographic ultimately cannot influence the vote outside of a handful of Lok Sabha and Vidhan Sabha seats in India. And I haven't seen a mass millennial leader at the scale that could really create a millennial political movement emerge anywhere right now, but for maybe a Jagan Reddy in Andhra mm-hmm. Pradesh, who once again have appeal within Andhra Pradesh and not outside of it. 
And to be quite honest with you, I'm not even sure if he is a millennial. Yeah, I don't think he is. He's 48. This is way beyond the millennial yeah, age. Yeah, exactly. Jumping to a story that's really inspiring to me in the book. Ivan, can you share Nazneen's journey? Give your listeners context. Um, Nazneen is one of the women I interviewed in my book. And I was fascinated by her and her story. And I really wanted to include her as being someone who sort of breaks a lot of barriers and have, you know, made the most of a very difficult situation. So Nazneen is someone who I met in Hyderabad and She's a survivor of domestic abuse. She got married a few years ago and moved to Qatar with her husband. And he used to beat her. And Nazneen decided that, you know, I'm not going to tolerate this. And after some planning and um, some struggles, she eventually escaped that abusive marriage and moved back home to Hyderabad in with her parents. And she was a few months pregnant at the time. And she had a bit of a difficult pregnancy. So she was, you know, just on bed rest most of the time and watching these videos on YouTube. And I don't know, you know, if you've um, gone down rabbit holes on YouTube, but oftentimes, you know, they can take you to completely unexpected places. And one of those places that this rabbit hole took her was makeup tutorials and she started watching these makeup tutorials in Hindi and she got addicted and she just watched you know hours worth of makeup tutorials and she realized that wow you know I really enjoy this and and after her pregnancy she just started practicing first on herself and then on girls in her neighborhood and people started telling her hey you know you're really good at this so Nazneen then eventually moved on to doing bridal makeup for for a little bit of money And then she ended up hiring someone, you know, out of her parents' living room uh, who would do some of the smaller tasks while Nazneen would do the bigger ones. And, you know, her service had then expanded to threading and, you know, all of these other facials and all of that. And eventually the, the demand was so high when I met Nazneen, she was opening her own salon in Hyderabad. And uh, she learned everything from YouTube. And word of mouth was WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook, which is how she found her clients. And I just found this story so fascinating because it's such a millennial story. And I don't know if 20 years ago, her story would have ever been possible that a survivor of domestic abuse uh, in India has become an entrepreneur and a very successful entrepreneur. And the internet made her that entrepreneur. You know, she learned everything on the internet and that's how she found her clients. And I really love that story because it's so positive and one of hope that you can really turn your life around even from some of the darkest moments that you've been in. Vivan, what is the impact you seek to make with this book? So, Puni, that's a question, you know, I've long um, thought about. And it's an interesting one. And I think the answer is exactly this, to come on to podcasts like yours and to meet you know, a wide variety of folks and talk about the book and my research with them so that, you know, maybe 10, 10% or 15% or hopefully more than that of the people that I've met use some of the data and use some of the ideas in my book in their lives. So in their lives as entrepreneurs or in their lives as employees of a company or in their lives as, you know, members of society. Um, where they say like, hey, you know, this is a fascinating insight I discovered in Vivan's book and I want to do something about it. Or, you know, I previously had these views and I've begun to realize that they might not be the ones that are best for society and I might want to revisit them and read more. And so, you know, in my book, I don't take, you know, any position on any issue, but I basically put the stories and information of people I've met in of young India for the reader to make those conclusions. And so to answer your question, it's for the reader to have a complete understanding of what's going on in India and particularly small town India so that they can sort of take their own lessons and apply them in their own lives and hopefully to very productive and positive results. Where can my listeners find you and your book online? Listeners can reach out to me on any of my social media handles. So it's Vivan Marwaha on Twitter and Instagram. And they can buy the book um, 
at any big local bookstore but also on Amazon and Flipkart. Please get a copy and reach out to me if you have any comments, feedback, questions or would like more information and also on my social media portfolios of all the articles I've written and my newsletter where I send updates every few months. So uh, please do check those out as well. Vivan, it was lovely speaking with you. Thank you for being on Galata. Thank you for having me, Puneet. It was, you know, lovely meeting you in Bangalore and, and doing this. And like I just said, you know, the, the whole purpose of this book is to reach out to uh, new audiences and really present a picture that I hope enlightens people and gets them to do something about the shared cause. So thanks for having me. Now go and make some Galata.